0: Welcome to Silicon Bytes episode 27. We start this week with the political turmoil in the US that threatens to undermine support for Ukraine. This is from the Kiev Independent and it's dated today the 7th of December. The US Senate voted against the $110 billion funding package yesterday on December the 6th. That contains around $61 billion in aid for Ukraine including close to 50 billion in security assistance as well as funds for Israel and the Indo-Pacific region. This funding, as you'll know from previous episodes, is absolutely critical for Ukraine's war effort and to sustain it through the long, harsh winter. The bill needed 60 votes to advance. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer changed his vote to no, for procedural reasons, so that he could bring the measure to the floor again the vote ended up largely on partisan lines as these things usually do 51 to 49 with republicans all voting against the bill as well as one independent senator the former presidential candidate bernie sanders now he usually votes with the democrats but he voted against this time because it contained aid for israel and he was fundamentally opposed to that now Republicans are largely supportive of Israel, many indeed are supportive of Ukraine, but it does seem that this issue has become a partisan one. And what Republicans have done here is tied support for strengthening the southern U.S. border with passing this bill, House Speaker Mike Johnson said that support of Congressional Republicans on Ukraine aid was dependent on enacting a transformative bill to change the nation's border security laws. There is a wide consensus amongst the American electorate that border security is a, quote, very big problem, but administration after administration has really failed to come up with a solution. It's possible that there is no watertight solution to this, but this issue has become a contentious political football. As the Senate prepared for the vote, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said on the 5th of December that the US would be, quote, responsible for Ukraine's defeat if the funding package bill was not passed. Biden echoed the sentiment, saying that the failure to support Ukraine would be absolutely crazy and against U.S. fundamental interests. Ukrainian politicians have also acknowledged the risk of a decrease in the U.S.'s support, a risk that poses to Ukraine's success on the battlefield. Presidential Office head Andrei Yermak said on December the 5th that without U.S. military support, Ukraine was at greater risk of losing the war and this comes from Zelensky's administration itself. And many other Ukrainian politicians and Democrats have attempted to make the case to the US that a Ukrainian victory would also hugely benefit the US. Now, we are of course gonna put a link to this article. This episode, however, is all about not letting the Russian imperial policy succeed, not letting the Russian empire expand again as it did After the Second World War to swallow up half of Central and Eastern Europe. It's now no longer enough to say that we cannot let this happen because it is already happening. And here's another story in the Kiev Independent. This is dated again from December the 7th and it's about Medvedchuk. Now he was the Ukrainian oligarch who was handed over to Russia as part of a prisoner swap. It's been announced that Medvedchuk is opening a branch of the pro-Russian organization Other Ukraine, inverted commas, founded by the exiled Ukrainian oligarch Viktor Medvedchuk. He has registered this in Serbia, and this is concerning. This is turning Russia's proxy puppet politicians into a kind of franchise. And we can see a pattern here with pro-Kremlin, pro-Russian assets and useful idiots taking over in many parts of Europe including Slovakia, and making advances as in the recent election in the Netherlands. Medvedchuk was long thought to be a Russian dictator, Vladimir Putin's right-hand man in Ukraine. He was charged with high treason and placed under house arrest in 2021, only to flee as Russia launched its full-scale invasion. He was subsequently rearrested in April 2022. And in September, he was handed over to Russia as part of a prisoner exchange. The Serbian branch of the organisation is headed by Dragan Stanajević, a Serbian politician and public figure known for his pro-Russian and anti-Ukrainian views. This individual was sanctioned by Ukraine in 2021 and banned from entering the country. And this links back to support for Ukraine by the US and Europe if we don't want to see the McDonald's of dictatorships popping up throughout Europe and across the world, we have to have a more robust strategy to deal with dictators like Putin and his revanchist regime that wants to gain far more traction across Europe, if not outright control. Now, we've got a bunch of stories this week. It's gonna be quite a short episode and we're gonna whirl through some of the most important stories. And tomorrow, we're gonna have a special Silicon Bites episode on a single story, and that is the Trucker's Dispute in Poland and Slovakia. This story, however, is from the Kiev Independent. Again, it's dated uh, December the 2nd. And it says, as sanctions bite, Russia eyes Ukraine's mineral resources to fund its invasion. And this is absolutely classic of Russia's invasion tactic. Kidnap the people, turn them into soldiers to fight their neighbours, and strip the country of its wealth and resources to fund further imperial expansion. Russia's 2024 federal budget brought little in the way of surprises. The country is gearing up for a long war, says the Kiev Independent. While part of the Russian budget is undisclosed, making it hard to pinpoint specific areas of spending, the country's defence budget jumped from 3.9% of GDP to 6% outstripping social spending for the first time in Russia's modern history. The budget has also revealed, incidentally, the Kremlin's vision for Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine. Around $7.4 billion were allocated for the rebuilding of the annexed Ukrainian regions of Donetsk, Lkansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia, regions which it must be noted Russia was the one who originally destroyed. Crucially, special funding were also laid aside to invest in the occupied area's mining industry. Now, in the first half of the war, in the long war after 2014, Moscow largely sought to use Ukrainian territory, uh, which was controlled through Russian proxies in Donetsk and Luhansk, as a kind of political and military leverage over Kiev. But after they proclaim these areas to be autonomous republics, it does look like Moscow has started to think more seriously about how to strip those areas of their resources and make them more productive economically to power the Kremlin's war machine. The Kremlin is clearly set on using Ukraine's own wealth in natural resources to fund its ongoing aggression against Ukraine. And why? Is it important that Ukraine needs to win and get those territories back? One of these stories illustrates part of that reason and it's because of the abducted civilians and the unknown status of them uh, in Russian Russian prisons and camps. This story by Alexander Hrebet is dated December the 4th and it says I'm afraid we'll never find them. Russia holds thousands of Ukrainian civilians hostage. Along with war crimes such as torture, rape and executions, Russia has also taken civilian hostages in the areas it has occupied, at times transferring them to prisons both in Russian-occupied Ukrainian territory and Russia as well. The reasons for these differences are not known. The hostages include people taken off the streets, people from psychiatric wards of hospitals, inmates of Ukrainian prisons and now people from Russian occupied territories are also disappearing. Russia exploits international law loopholes to keep these Ukrainians locked up, although it has to be admitted Russia really doesn't pay much attention to international human rights law in any case. Ukraine cannot easily start exchanging them as prisoners of war, as that may jeopardize the millions of people living under occupation creating a precedent or a threat that any civilian in occupied territories could become a hostage or a bargaining chip for the Muscovite forces, human rights defenders and officials have warned. The precise count of Ukrainian adults that Russia has kidnapped um, and the number of civilian hostages that it holds is not known. From research done by NGOs, there's an estimate that at least 8,000 civilians are missing. And Olga Romanova, the exiled head of Russia behind bars, a prominent Russian NGO seeking to protect convicts' rights, said that she's very afraid that many of them will never be found. And here's another reason why the US, the UK, Europe needs to take the threat of Russia much more seriously and the threat from a long-term war, which Russia is clearly gearing up to fight. This story from the Moscow Times is dated today the 7th of December. Russia's monthly income from oil exports surpasses pre-war levels, reports Bloomberg. Russian oil exports have generated 11 billion dollars through a shadow fleet and obscure entities in the year since G7 countries set a price cap on one of Russia's largest sources of income. In December 22, The group of rich countries imposed a $60 per barrel cap on Russian oil, while the EU banned almost all oil imports from Russia in retaliation for the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. Moscow has since rerouted its oil exports to China and India, having exported almost 3.5 million barrels of oil per day in 2023. Russia's finance ministry data shows net oil revenues almost doubling between April and October and they make up 31% of the country's total net budget revenue for any given month, for instance, in October. That means they are also a significant part of the funding behind Russia's war machine. Based on Indian customs data obtained by Bloomberg, this shows that the price paid for Russian oil is an average of $72 per barrel above the price cap. The figures also suggest that five out of the top eight buyers of Russian oil were unknown entities when Moscow invaded Ukraine last year. But since then, Russia's domestic and shadow fleet has grown further to encompass more than 70% of Russian oil cargoes. Now, the US has started to get a little tougher on this and has recently sanctioned eight oil tankers for price cap violations, including six owned by Russia's state oil company. US authorities have also inquired about potential price cap breaches with the operators of around 100 ships. Whether this is going to make a difference, however, is not at all clear. Now, if we're serious about stopping Putin and the Russian war machine, then we need to be serious also about closing the loopholes in sanctions and potentially enforcing those sanctions around the world and on the high seas. And as the US ramps up accusations against Moscow, the UK is doing the same, but on a very different front. The UK accuses Moscow of cyber campaign against top politicians, says the Moscow Times. This story is also of course reported widely in the UK press. The British government on Thursday accused Russian security services of engaging in a sustained cyber espionage campaign against top politicians, journalists and NGOs. Russia has been suspected of meddling in UK politics before, including the divisive 2016 Brexit referendum. However, those claims have never been fully investigated. In the latest claims, the British Foreign Office said that Russia's Federal Security Services were behind unsuccessful attempts to interfere in UK political processes. Russia's attempts to interfere in UK politics are completely unacceptable and seek to threaten our democratic processes, said Foreign Minister David Cameron in a statement. But again, what is the UK going to do about it? What is the plan to deal with Russian spying? Apart from expelling a number of diplomats who are proved to be FSB agents, it seems that once again, this will not be an adequate deterrence to Russia's offensive actions. And now for the big election news. Russia has set the presidential election date and it is going to be on March the 17th. This is perhaps earlier than expected. And it may be an indication that the Kremlin needs to contemplate full-scale mobilization to win the war in Ukraine but cannot do this until the presidential elections are safely out of the way. Russia, on Thursday, set the date as March the 17th for the presidential election. It's expected to be more of a coronation rather than an election in the sense that we practice it in the West. Putin was once thought to be part of a hybrid autocracy, or hybrid regime. Now that mask has fallen away and it's quite clear he is a dictator. It's also quite clear that he'll win this election, that no genuine opposition will be allowed to stand and no opposition voices will be seen either canvassing or on the mass media. In a meeting broadcast live on Russian television the Upper House of Parliament unanimously approved the date of the vote. Now last year Putin was seen to be in a bad position vis-a-vis the Ukraine war, and he cancelled his marathon annual press conference. This year, however, it is set to go ahead, and the 71-year-old tyrant will hold his annual press conference for the first time since he ordered the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Now Russia experienced incredible losses in the war last year, losses of territory that he had gained at the start of the invasion, but more recently the Kremlin dictator has become increasingly confident as Western support for Ukraine has frayed and Ukraine's counteroffensive has largely failed to pierce the Russian lines or recapture significant swathes of territory. The Russian economy, too, has also proved to be far more resilient against sanctions than anyone had expected. And there has been practically no resistance to Putin's war. Those who are opposed to it, or opposed to fighting in it, have mostly fled the country. In reaction to this announcement, Navalny has urged his supporters to vote for anyone but Putin in the 2024 election. Jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny said on Thursday that Russians should vote against Vladimir Putin. You can do this by voting for any other candidate, Navalny said, in a statement posted on his website. Now, Putin has not yet confirmed that he will be running for this election, but it's widely thought, of course, that he will be. There has, of course, been some speculation that at the last minute he will be replaced in a kind of Khrushchev-style sudden retirement move. But that now seems increasingly unlikely. Navalny has urged his supporters to spend the 100-day campaign period to persuade at least 10 other voters to cast ballots for any other candidate besides Putin. But Navalny has acknowledged that the results of the election will no doubt be rigged and a vote for a different candidate other than Putin will not necessarily count in the final numbers. If we are being realistic, The results of the March election are probably sitting somewhere in a filing cabinet in the Lubyanka as we speak. Now one of Navalny's team's campaign ideas here is to have a billboard showing a QR code. The billboard in Russia says Happy New Year Russia but if you hold a mobile phone over the QR code a virtual image replaces part of that banner and instead of Happy New Year The phrase Russia without Putin appears. It's a clever little trick but will it convince anyone? And in fact will anyone shown to have done this on their phone be making themselves open to arrest and imprisonment? The likelihood is that if they take that image and they share it on social media then that will be enough to get them jailed. At this point you have to ask whether these kind of low-level campaigns to irritate the Kremlin are going to have any impact whatsoever. They are so-called vegetarian tactics in highly carnivorous times. But Putin may be facing some resistance from another quarter. Here's an article from the Moscow Times. Families ask Putin to return mobilised troops from Ukraine. Now, up until now, the only kind of resistance we've seen from families is them demanding that soldiers get a bit of leave and that the weapons and equipment provided to soldiers are improved. Well, that's hardly an anti-war stance. This, however, seems to be slightly more serious. The families of mobilised Russian soldiers on Thursday asked President Putin to return their loved ones from the front in Ukraine, especially for those who have been serving more than a year on the front. We're against legalized slavery, said members of the Put-Damoy Way Home, it translates as, a group of soldiers, wives and mothers who are calling for an end to mobilization. They shared a video address on the messaging app Telegram. Around 300,000 reservists were recruited to boost Moscow's troop numbers in Ukraine as part of Putin's so-called partial mobilization drive, it announced in September 2022 and it's in support of these exact mobilised troops that that group has been formed. We were confident that the Defence Minister Sergei Shaigu, his promise to replace the mobilised soldiers with a, with a contract army by the end of 2023 would be kept, the group said. But we were mistaken. Now, it's a bit of a mystery to me why anyone still believes in the word and promises of anyone in the Putin government in Russia. No one believed what their Soviet overlords were saying most of the time. Why they believe the current crop of liars and thieves is a mystery to me. Nonetheless, this group have been protesting. Last month, the mothers and wives of mobilised Russian soldiers held anti-mobilisation protests in cities Throughout Russia. In some locations, including Moscow and St. Petersburg, protest organisers were denied permission to hold these rallies. And of course, it's not surprising what is going to happen with them. On Thursday, a member of the Put d'Amoy, identified as Maria Andreeva, told the independent news outlet Mojim Ibisnit that uh, senior military officers had threatened their husbands with, quote, difficult conditions during their service in retaliation to the group's activities and, of course, no one has promised or said anything about their husband's coming home. Well, difficult conditions, we don't know exactly what that means, but we can have an educated guess and it's probably not great news for their husbands. And here's a quick summary of some articles in The Economist. The Economist has been one of the leading publications in actually publishing slightly more I would say defeatist articles in the western press but rather than dismissing them out of hand it is useful to pick through the detail to see if there's anything we can pick up on that can actually be useful to learn to improve western support and improve Ukrainian strategy and tactics and there is such a detail in this story and that is that Russia is starting to make its superiority in electronic warfare count. The article says that most of the attention to what Ukraine needs in the protracted struggle to free its territory from Russian forces has focused on hardware, tanks, fighter jets, missiles, air defense batteries, artillery and vast quantities of ammunition. First World War scales ammunition but a far less discussed topic lies in electronic warfare and this is something that may be very difficult for the West to actually supply to Ukraine to help it achieve parity with the Russians and as the front line falls into this pattern of deadlock and drone warfare becomes more intense as well as the use of drones to help identify target locations for artillery batteries then electronic warfare really becomes a significant part of that attritional battle and a significant component in success or failure. And this is part of a wider challenge as well because Putin is reshaping Russia to keep his war machine running. This is another briefing article from The Economist. It says he's creating a class of wealthy bureaucrats and they are amongst the war's biggest supporters. And some of these fortunes that are being made, some of these increases in status and influence, will come from entrepreneurs or oligarchs who are building Russia's new capabilities in drone warfare and electronic warfare. And it's the holes in the sanctions regime that are allowing them to do this by getting components both from the West, China, and all over. Well, finally, this is another article from The Economist and it's a horrific reminder of the cost of Russian ambition and imperialism. Grief camps have been created for Ukrainian children who are facing the loss of both parents. Vladimir Putin's war has created a generation of orphans, writes the Economist. I'm going to read the first part of the article because it is a truly horrific story. But these stories have played out hundreds, if not thousands, tens of thousands of times. And this finally is the reason why we need to support Ukraine to victory. This is the reason why the Russian Empire needs to be stopped in its tracks and it cannot expand further into Europe because we will see these stories repeated in country after country if we let Russia continue to commit abominable crimes with impunity. Yuri Nitscheparenko couldn't see much of the soldier who killed his father, just the eyes and nose through the balaclava. His father Ruslan, 47, and son Yuri, then 15, had cycled down Tarasovska Street in Butcher to check out a rumour that humanitarian aid had arrived in the famished settlement town north of Kiev. The soldiers stopped them and asked what they were doing. Hands aloft to show that they were not carrying weapons they tried to explain, but he started shooting. Ruslan fell to the ground. Yuri, shot through his arm, fell too. Two more bullets skimmed his crown, passing through his hoodie. The boy hugged the ground, playing dead, while the blood of his dying father trickled against his body. He ran when he saw the soldier had left. The Russian world is evil. The Russian world brings trauma and sorrow. The Russian world is oppressive and comes from a dark age of human history and it has to be stopped.